And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm now joined by Alex Stewart. Good morning, Joe. And Seb Stafford-Bloor. Morning, Joe Devine. Morning. We're going to talk today about Tottenham Hotspur. Tottenham Hotspur, Spurs, anything else? Any other nicknames I've forgotten about? The The, Lily Whites, Whites. is that them? Yeah, the Lily Whites. Okay. Uh, well, because they're going to win the league, aren't they? That's well, Anyway, that's talk around the town. That's the town that I'm in. Um, but that's talk everywhere. You go to the local co-op. You go into the local bakery. People are saying, that Spurs, they're as good as they were in 1960. And these are elderly people who would remember. So you have to trust them because of their wisdom. Obviously, we're going to treat it with some uh, scepticism, uh, as as you should do. Uh, but the facts are, facts are the same. Mourinho's team, look... Pretty good, and uh, they look better than many of the teams that we've seen this this season so far. And what's been a very inconsistent season. So today we're going to talk about Mourinho. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Spurs. Uh, that's my door, and I've got to get it because it's Christmas presents. Back in a minute, Seb, can, tell people what it's going to be. I actually tuned out while Joe was talking because he he does that thing where he sort of he just he just carries on like a, a bicycle without any brakes or uh, <laughs> a like hill the, without like- an end. Like just the lads in the Hovis advert who just yeah, is yeah, sort of a little cruising bit. down the cobbles. Health and, and, and safety nightmare. You know, we, we should also say 1961. A little bit of a fact check there um, before we press on. But uh, shall we get going? Adonis, please create a break and let us begin. Is that good? You did a good job. Oh, it was mar- fine. Masterful. <laughs> it was <Okay>. fine. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, if you would like to... Sign up to The Athletic uh, this December. You can do a thing known as a buy one, gift one, where you get a subscription, uh, and for the, the, the same price, you get to gift a subscription too to someone, I don't know, that you like um, for, for the holidays. So visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO to buy one, gift one of The Athletic. Okay, let us begin uh, with the North London derby. Now, I recognise uh, those of you listening to this on release day. This this was five days ago. Old news, not so. We're going to have a little tactical analysis of the game, but then we're going to talk about the result uh, in a much broader fashion. So let's begin, uh, Alex, if we might, with uh, Tottenham's comprehensive disassembling of Arsenal, although I suppose that's not really what they did, was it? I mean, it depends what you mean by disassembled. They, they played a plan that was incredibly disciplined um that that required them to maximize the limited opportunities that they had but also meant that they weren't really going for lots of opportunities this is this is the kind of classic counter-attacking Tottenham that we now see so 32% possession uh only just over 200 passes but a kind of 
lethal clinical uh, approach in front of goal and a huge amount of discipline and work rate from everyone else. Um, Would you like to guess when the last time a, a top six clash resulted in 33% possession for one of the teams? Um, no. I can't, I couldn't think of one. It's incredibly unbalanced, isn't it? I mean, you know, they're, they're playing an Arsenal who consistently this season have had a lot of the ball, but uh, have not really managed to get any penetration or shots going with that. So it was kind of well set up for this sort of dynamic, but it's what Spurs have done pretty consistently against whoever they're playing. And, and even against Southampton, for example, uh, away from home where they scored five, they still were playing very much on the back foot, waiting to exploit Southampton's high line and get in behind it. And, and uh, with Song and Kane, they are able to do that. But I think what's interesting about this Spurs performance is how everybody played their part. So, for example, to highlight Stephen Bergwijn, who actually spent a lot of the game almost playing as an as a sort of second right back, um, yeah. was defending very, very deep. But also, crucially, what that meant was that he was close enough, particularly to the midfield pivot or to Aurier, to be able to act as a kind of carrier of the ball out. Uh, Hoiberg would do this sometimes as well. So there were... There were players who were kind of detailed with making these little forays forwards when Spurs did get possession. And then obviously what they're really looking to do is have Kane drop into that 10 spot and, and release Son. And, and that was was very effective on one occasion and then roles were reversed. Seb, the first goal came 12 minutes in, I believe. Harry Kane uh, received the ball in what was a fairly congested midfield area um, on the break, of course. Uh, passed it upfield to Son, who scores... Um, I mean, I suppose there's not really many ways of describing it other than a wonder goal. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I've seen a little bit of criticism for Rob Holding, uh, criticism of Rob Holding as a result of that, but I'm not quite sure what he's supposed to do because um, at the point where Son's running at him, diagonally in from the touchline, uh, Sergio Reguillon is is you know trying to, um, is busting a gut to, to overlap on the outside. So he has to kind of hold his position. And of course, by that point, uh, Kane's moving forward, Lachelso is moving forward, you know. Um, so Holding can't just abandon his position. And then I think it's one of those situations where if a player's able to do that, you just got to accept it. It's just too yeah. good. Um, and it's actually a goal that I'd like to see Son score more of because he's, he's obviously got the ability. He's got a sort of a, a mini truncated version of it at Manchester City in the um, Champions League a couple of years ago when he cut in off his... Um, off the left, into, uh, onto his right, and then whipped it past Edison. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's 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 beautiful. It's one of those where, you know, some in, in some stadiums, depending on where the camera is and depending on the kind of the perspective and angle you have, that's kind of perfect because you have the the the, the optimal uh, optimal perspective on the ball's arc into the goal. It reminded me of a, um, a Samuel Eto'o goal for Barcelona, if, uh, like probably about 12 or 13 years ago where he sort of bent it up into the um into the top right hand corner of the screen and just falls back into the top corner it's a beautiful mm. goal beautiful goal i mean this is the rob holding stuff i saw some of that it's, it's kind of funny to me because i thought surely that if there were to be criticism doled out at all it would be to party and i believe gabrielle who were closest to kane when he uh received the ball in the middle of the field i mean like it felt like maybe there could have been a it, it, it's as I said, I, I, I'm not sure how you argue against a wonder goal. I think you're right. I think you just have to have to accept that those are going to happen from time to time. Um, but it felt like there could have been a little bit more closing down in the middle, or maybe perhaps they switched I off agree. for a second. 
Well, I, I think the, the criticism has to be aimed at what Arsenal did to prevent the move developing. So you're quite right. You know, How do you restrict Kane from not only receiving the ball in that kind of position, but then having the time to move the ball out to Son? Also, Alex has already kind of mentioned this, but I think one of the differences between the two sides, apart from their general mentality, was that Tottenham always, always, always had midfielders protecting either their outside centre-halves or their full-backs. Uh, I know they played with two centre-backs, but um, the principle remains the same. So whenever whenever a player was squaring up to Serge Ori, for instance, there was either Sissoko or Bergwijn ahead of him. So there was very, very rarely did you see a player have a one-on-one. And so Holding was kind of a victim of that. Like if you're, I don't care what situation you're in, Son Heung-min against Rob Holding only has one winner every time. It's a mismatch. And that's, yeah. from a coaching perspective, that's what you're trying to prevent. You, It's not about how an individual player deals with that situation because Son's got sort of, sort of fantastic uh, technical and physical advantages over Holding. It's preventing that from ever happening in the first place. And that was the failure in that instance. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting um, to watch this game because I, I think the, the two goals and also Arsenal's best attack, uh, which was around 31 minutes in, the, all three of these uh, came from press-breaking moments. And I'm not sure, Alex, whether I, I'm using the term press-breaking in the in the best sense that, or whether it's just passes that uh, take a number of people uh, out of the out of the game, but the Son example is perfect one there. 31 minutes in, Partey uh, beats I don't know four people in mid- in midfield, and suddenly Arsenal are four on two. Now that that obviously does not result in a goal, uh, but similarly later for the Kane goal, Aurier manages to pass through four Arsenal players um, without you know losing his head and smacking it upfield as a clearance. I think most players would have done that in that situation, but he uh, he manages to find a pass through the middle, and that eventually results in in Harry Kane's goal. So do, do you think that, that that's a good description of this game, that, that you know those special moments came when uh, one pass, one action allowed four of the opposition team to be taken out, uh, taken out of the game completely? Yeah, I, I think certainly with, um, with the Spurs goals, that's the case. I mean, with, with Arsenal, I, it, I think it was less about press breaking because Spurs weren't pressing that aggressively. They, you know, they, they were more about shape. And so, your, I, I suppose the point with a press breaking pass or, or carry is that you're relying on the the way that the opposition are moving towards you because by default, if the opposition are pressing a particular player, that is also going to leave gaps elsewhere um, because they are moving from particular positions. And, and Tottenham again did this thing that we saw against Manchester City where, you know, at times they, they effectively had a back six. Um, and so you're, you're not really seeing a huge amount of dynamic pressing there. I mean, Celso was pressing a bit um he's quite good at that Bergwijn too but generally speaking Tottenham were were content to to fall back and that that presented Arsenal with real problems and sometimes that's where you see the ability of someone like Partey who can who can thread that pass through now whether those players are pressing or whether they're static you still need to be able to find that gap Arsenal did seek to press more um but I think they were also conscious of the fact that Tottenham had this counter-attacking capability. And so they were sort of caught between a more natural pressing game and trying to hold their shape and, and prevent those passing angles. And obviously on a couple of occasions they didn't. Seb, has uh, Partey's walking off the pitch been cleared up yet? I, I didn't stick around for long after the game. 
In a way it has. So what seemed to happen was, sorry, my wife has just given me some nasal spray because I've got a bit of a cold. Sorry. Um, okay. okay. Let's hear, let's get a bit of audio of that, please. Can you, can you pop, pop a bit okay, of spray up then. the nose? Hang on. Yeah, yeah. Hang on. Hang on. Let's, let's hear. Oh, there we go. Oh. Okay. Now I'm going to be crystal clear with my audio. It's been cleared up to an extent. It's been, it seems to be a misunderstanding. So, Obviously, in the first instance, he suffers an injury. He starts to walk off the pitch. Arteta tries to... I mean, when, when he starts to walk off the pitch, Arsenal are attacking in what looks to be a fairly safe locked formation. That's famous last words, obviously, because that did not prove to be the case. Um, and as he comes off the pitch, Arteta kind of ushers him on as uh, as Tottenham are breaking into a 4 on 2 uh, He tries to uh, tries to retrieve his ground, but then he um, aggravates whatever whatever injury he had I don't know I, I think I think the reaction to something like that depends on the person who does it it'll be okay ultimately for Partey because he's a new signing because um he still has plenty of credit with the uh with the fans what I what I was left with thinking imagine imagine if that had been Mesut Ozil I mean <laughs> can you imagine the response to that I think um I think it's also I'm worth not sure that at that, the moment I feel like the response would be he's the best player in the world at least he's you on know, the pitch yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean it's 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 a strange one I mean I I also I don't want to make this too tenuous but I just think it it's sort of it was suggestive of other issues he got injured and he made a poor decision because ultimately in that situation go down go down stay on the pitch try and make the referee stop the game that's the correct way of doing things nevertheless you have to question um the awareness of the other arsenal players you have to in that situation one of your roles as a as a holding midfielder center half fullback whatever is to be aware of of a, an opponent's potential exit and especially a side like tottenham because how many how many how many uh, all week presumably arteta would have focused on the danger of the counter attack because Spurs are, we've covered this, Spurs are not a slow building side. They're not a possession in the final third, um, make little incisions, sort of Pep Guardiola team. You know, they rely on their, their pace on the break and their efficiency on the break. So in that situation, the responsibility falls on other players who are perhaps a little bit more familiar with Arteta's system to compensate for whatever's going on with Partey. Um, and I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want to pile on Granit Xhaka, but how, how how can you let that happen? How can you allow um, such an easy ball out of, out of the final third? And how can you allow such a mismatch to develop? You have to know what's happening behind you and around you. Um, and so Partey is the kind of the he's the easy player to blame. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm not entirely. The commentary team were furious with Jacker when he got his yellow card as well. <laughs> I, was, I, I just uh... you know, Jack, Joe. I think that. Um, it feels like I've seen the same performance from Granit Xhaka in every North London derby I've watched in which he's taken part. It's a, he makes a few faces, um, he makes a couple of crap tackles, maybe he gives away a penalty. Like he gives all the sort of superficial signs of um, being invested in the occasion. When it comes down to actually leaving a technical impression on the game itself, it's nothing. You know, if you compare, for instance, his performance against uh, Pierre-Emil Hoibergs, it's just night and day because one player knows his role. I still don't really know what Granit Xhaka is. I know what he was in the Bundesliga. I'm not sure what he's supposed to be in this Arsenal side at the moment. I'm going to move us on because I think uh, that our Arsenal supporting producer Adonis is probably reeling right now. So uh, desperate to stop the recording. You'd agree. It's catharsis. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 I don't think it's anything that Arsenal fans disagree with. No, sure. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. There was another performance that I was uh, tremendously impressed by. Um, and in fact, I, I text you about it about 75 minutes in, something like that. Seb, your response, I think, probably illustrates uh, the way that many people feel about this player um, or, or perhaps felt about this player, which was, uh, you know, we don't say things like that until the whistle blows. Uh, and that's because we were talking about uh, Serge Aurier, who and we've spoken about before. And I know that you believe that, that Serge Aurier has a mistake in him just waiting to pop out in every game. Um, at 75 minutes, uh, when I text you, he hadn't made that mistake, as far as I, I remember. Um, and I'm pretty sure that he didn't uh, by the time the whistle blew either. It was I thought it was a magnificent performance. I thought, I mean, he didn't do anything uh, that was spectacular, but he, everything that he did do, he did it very, very well. I thought he worked really nicely inside Bergwijn. Uh, and what I was impressed by mostly was his calmness in defending, because I've always associated him before as a player who's happy to canter forwards, can you know can actually score pretty nice goals, has a great strike on him, is a good crosser, you know can make things happen from an attacking standpoint, but defensively was always a little suspect, or at least you know even if he is capable of making the challenges, perhaps his positioning or concentration or whatever it was wasn't quite firing. Um, but in this Mourinho team, he's exactly the sort of person who you think might be a victim of it uh, as a result of the style of play. He was fantastic on Sunday. It feels a little bit like he's, his role has been simplified. Um, previously, in Mourinho's first season, of the first three quarters of his season, uh, there was a lot of emphasis on what Aurier could do with the ball because there wasn't a lot of attacking thrust. And so, and, and also, of course... Um, there was no Regulon on the other side. So, you know, the penetration from fullback was very one-sided. And so the burden fell on Aurier to provide that in the attacking, in the attacking zones. Now, uh, you still see him attacking and you still see him crossing the halfway line. But his role has, the kind of the ratios of his role have changed. So fundamentally now, uh, it matters more what he does without the ball. Uh, which isn't to say that he hasn't improved because I think... I think the big problem with Aurier wasn't necessarily... Uh, he, he was almost too confident in his, in his ability to win the ball. Uh, the mistakes he made would result from not necessarily uh, bad decisions, but decisions where he would he would try and win the ball from bad positions. So if you think, for instance, of the penalty he conceded in the game against Manchester City at the beginning of the year or the penalty he conceded at, in the Bernabeu against Real Madrid uh, a couple of years ago. It's not necessarily that he's uh, it's not necessarily that he's guilty of a, a positioning error, although you could make that argument. It's more that he just he 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 backs himself in a way which is quite reckless, and so and in a way which also invites referees to give decisions against him. But I think two things. Like first of all, you're lucky um, I didn't just ignore you because we don't say things like that after 15 minutes of a North London derby to go. It's not about Serge Aurier. It's, it's, it's the result of being a lifetime Spurs fan. It's not, sure, it's, uh, sure. you know, um, last 15 minutes of games, there lurks all kinds of peril. But I think a couple of things went really well. First of all, like, he's become far less impetuous, which is a huge positive. The second is that 
Mourinho's midfield and his attacking players protect him properly. Now, that's not about compensating for Serge Aurier. That's just what a modern fullback is is deserving of, especially one who is, you know, oftentimes going to sort of find himself in opposition to someone like uh, Aubameyang or, you know, any of the other any of the other forwards around the sort of the, the top half of the Premier League, pacey, technical, gifted, can score with very little space. And so you have to protect your fullbacks. And Spurs are doing a really good job of that. So if you watch that game back, uh, anytime Aurier is one on one with an attacking player, he has the support of a Sissoko behind him, or he is a second player with a, a Bergwijn in front of him. And so they they do a really good job, Tottenham, of of banking. Um, you know, banking up their resources, and this is one of the benefits of being um, of of playing with such a such a low block. You always have those numbers, and so it allows players like Oriate, who um, you know aren't aren't always or haven't always been the calmest in defensive situations, it allows them the kind of the you know the 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 fullback and the safety net, and uh, that that was. Um, you know, it was it was really impressive, and uh, yeah, I, I I haven't always felt particularly secure with him uh, at fullback. I was one of the people that could have welcomed Matt Doherty's signing in the in the summer. In many ways, I think the benefit of the Doherty signing has been to refocus Aurier and to make him fight for his position in the team, which previously was guaranteed. And you know, it, that wasn't um, you know that wasn't tremendously positive for a long time. Yeah. Well, anyway, well done, Serge Aurier. Uh, let's talk about Jose Mourinho now, because. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, Mourinho manages to be the talking point. I don't know why I'm blaming him. I'm in the media and I'm talking about him now. But I'm doing it because I feel like uh, for for a few years now, probably for three or four years, it's been sort of accepted generally that if it wasn't Jurgen Klopp or if it was a battle between Pep Guardiola and Mourinho, as it, as it has been for some, for some years, that, that Pep Guardiola is coming out on top, right? Um Mourinho, if he wins the title with Spurs, I feel, or even if he comes close to doing it, I feel like that just kind of, you know, completely changes what is is already, I appreciate, an irrelevant and meaningless argument. But it's, you know, turbocharges it, and that got me excited. Uh, and so I wanted to talk about Mourinho a little bit. I thought the best thing, I mean, and you know, we can see the we we can see the results of what Alex is about to say in the way that Spurs are playing. But I thought the best thing would be to ask Alex first to just give a little summary of. Um, of uh, Jose Mourinho's tactical philosophy um, as a football manager and, and where that departs from from Pep Guardiola. Because we often hear uh, about Pep Guardiola in possession and uh, Jose Mourinho and, 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 and not possession. But it's more about space, isn't it, Alex? Um, I think it's about controlling the game, um, game management. And, and I think... You know, Mourinho starts from a position of defensive solidity. So what he wants more than anything is to have a very well-structured defensive system that allows him to control the space in front of and at the sides of the penalty area. And that's why you see this falling back into a back six or Bergwijn doubling up, that kind of thing. Because what he's looking to do is lock down a particular area and then build from that. Um, so when Mourinho was uh, at Porto and and started to, to kind of practice this um, thing of tactical periodization. The idea was that you were training match situations all of the time, um, that that rather than having a training session of fitness and a training session of technique and so on, everything was geared towards creating circumstances in which the training replicated the game as much as possible. And that allowed the players to see 
everything that happened in the game as a series of uh, set responses to circumstances. Now, within that, there is a degree of improvisation. Um, and so, for example, you know, at Porto, he had Deco, who was able to, to carry the ball and do exciting things. Here, he's got Kane and Son who are able to do that. Um, but the management of the transition, moving from defence into attack, counter-attacking, was something that came more naturally to Mourinho teams because the way they thought about football was built in these series of kind of moments of, of, of changes happening and people reacting in certain sorts of ways. What that's allowed Mourinho to do is build teams that are quite happy without the ball because they know that their defensive system is so well organised and so well drilled um, and that, that it provides this incredibly stable platform and then when they counterattack, they they know what they're doing in those circumstances because they're trained to think, you know, like this is the moment and then sort of explode forwards, explode in a kind of controlled way because they don't overcommit. And I, I, th I think what's interesting about this Spurs team is that because of the personnel that he has um, and particularly the acquisition of Hoiberg, who's sort of, you know, the, the Costina of, of this team, it's it's an ideal setup for him um, because it allows him to coach in a way that he's very comfortable with. He has the players that are able to fulfil that, um, and this is why it's working. I think it also helps that this is such a topsy turvy season. Um, that there's this incredible congestion of fixtures, that teams are stretched thin, uh, and that teams who rely more on possession, more on on kind of probing with the ball that requires a certain... I'm not saying that, that what Mourinho does doesn't require physicality because, you know, players like Hoiberg run their socks off in this, uh, you know, this system. But there's less of an emphasis on constantly being on the front foot and constantly attacking, um, which I think can get quite tiring for players physically and mentally. And so this this way that he has of controlling game state is is much more, perhaps much more effective. If if there were a season that Mourinho would come back and do well, it was always going to be this slightly chaotic, topsy-turvy season. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I love it. And I also think uh, what helps Mourinho is that he's the underdog again because he's with Spurs. And if you think about it, I can't remember who it was that, that came on our podcast and said this to us, Alex. I think it was me and you there. And I remember it being a kind of little... Uh, an enlightening moment but someone told me if you look back at Mourinho's career 
where he's performed best. It's when he was an underdog. So obviously with Porto, obviously with Inter, with Chelsea the first time round, and at Real Madrid and Man United and Chelsea the second time round, it was a little bit more of a struggle. There were you know much greater expectations and. Well, I mean, we know the rest, right? Uh, but now he's at Spurs. Presumably the expectation is to finish in the top four, but that's perfectly capable with the, with the team of Spurs' uh, quality. And uh, Mourinho's the Mourinho's the, the underdog again. I, th- I wonder if he thrives on that, and I wonder if the players thrive on that. Because it struck me, Seb, watching the game on Sunday, that the commentators uh, would sort of repeatedly watch the game and then, uh, watch moments in the game and then say, oh, I don't know how the players are happy playing like this. And I guess it's just because they're winning. It's like, yeah, no fucking shit. Because <laughs> they're winning. Like, what do you mean? Why wouldn't they want to win? I don't, I, I think like football being beautiful is probably far more important to fans than it is to players, right? If you're a player, you know, and you're pulling for the team, it's about, it's about winning first and foremost, but it's also about camaraderie. And I, th- I can imagine getting a great deal of satisfaction out of doing your job properly and being in an environment where you are repeatedly told that your job matters. It's not like, uh, you know, it's not like a Mourinho team, all the praise is going to go to Harry Kane and, and Son, uh, Son for scoring their goals, is it? It's going to go to them for their... Uh, for the performance that they've been, you know, been coached coached to do uh, since Mourinho arrived, that that as, as exactly what Alex was just describing there, and I imagine it's it's an environment where the incentive is, you know, and the and the 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 the, the benefit comes from doing your job uh, exceptionally well on a on a daily basis, even if your job is quite boring, as as Emil Hoiberg's can be sometimes. Um, but it just it, it strikes me as such an odd thing to say. Of course, they're happy. They're winning games. I felt like that whole segment was really strange. I was watching it and uh, I forget, I think it might have been a, a combination of Graham Sunis and Jamie Redknapp. Apologies, they kind of run into one another. I think it was, I think um, it was Neville and Redknapp. Was it Neville? Uh, no, yeah. no, I, 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 Neville was doing co-coms. Um, but uh, okay. Redknapp went on a, a very strange little monologue, um, which kind of um, lost itself halfway through. Uh, and then Graham Sunis was talking about sort of how, you know, the fans wouldn't be happy. And I just thought, hang on, they just won a North London derby to go top of the Premier League. And they scored probably one of the goals of the season in doing it. What are they I talking about? I think they'll about? be all right with it. I mean, yeah, really? Like, <laughs> what are they saying? It's a fucking wonder goal in an amazing game where fans are back for the first time. And it's and and it's it's two nil, and you feel genuinely positive about the outlook for the season. What world are they lost in? Well, I also you missed the point because I felt like I know we joked about this a little bit earlier, but I felt for, for as a, as an experience, um, it's it's always worse uh, watching a North London derby on television. Like I find it easier to watch them in the stadium. I, I don't know why that is, um, but as an experience, I found it one of the the calmest I can remember because it never felt like Arsenal were going to find the goal they were looking for. No, at no point. There was no, they didn't really create any chances. They didn't really create any shooting opportunities. They looked lost from the moment the second goal went in. And I, I, I'm not trying to speak for an entire fan base, but I, I think that would have been enormously gratifying for a lot of, uh, a lot of the fans, but also the players. And you mentioned Hoiberg and actually, okay, beyond Son and Kane, who have obviously um, received plenty of praise, quite rightly so, uh, a lot of the other Tottenham players are having their reputations restored. Hoiberg, having been almost a little bit forgotten at Southampton, important player to Southampton for a long time, yes, but didn't have the status he currently he's currently enjoying. Also, players like Toby Alderweireld, who uh, has had a renaissance. We've talked about Aurier, haven't talked about Eric Dyer, who has reclaimed his reputation as a, uh, a credible centre half. Yeah, you know, so all these players 
all these players, it's, it's not about entertainment. It's about ego and, and satisfaction, job performance, however, however you want to term it. I can't find a negative for any of them at the moment. Um, and so, you know, to, to, I just don't understand the mentality of trying to create it's, a negative. It's, it's a job, isn't it? It's like, it's, when I hear that, I think like, well, I mean, if, you're if part I of a successful make a unit, good video, then I don't, I don't mind that I didn't make it in a sexy way. Well, the, <laughs> you know the, the, what I mean? Well, this is the thing. It also it, it, it's not it, a good example. It misdiagnoses. <laughs> it misdiagnoses what a football team is. A football team is about performance and achievement, and ultimately about success and camaraderie. And all the well, yeah, all the all the subliminals like brotherhood and camaraderie, absolutely. And if you were to look at Tottenham, okay, we we're looking on from the outside and in a kind of media way, but they would seem to exhibit all of those, all of those symptoms. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. You could it's not complicated, maybe, is it? Uh, this, well, it, this it is feels what like, shook me about the commentary. Well, I know, but I think rightly so because I, I, I think it's sort of it's, I think it's it, it's 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 a leftover from. Do you remember that moment in the Amazon documentary where Deli Ali comes into the change room and has a bit of a moan about the playing style, about you know just booting mm. it and defending it? Yeah. it? Seems a little bit like that, but it, it's hugely disingenuous not to also reference what the Premier League table looks like at the moment while making its comments because I think that's everything to football player I think there's two things to say firstly there, there was a clip on Twitter the other day and I can't remember which game it was from but Hoiberg basically shields the ball back to Larice, who picks it up and Hoiberg does this kind of double fist pump because he's so thrilled <laughs> yeah, that he yeah. has guarded the ball back to his <laughs> goalkeeper um, you like you don't you don't get that and you don't get the discipline of that performance and other performances this season without players buying into it. it you can't sit there mm. and pontificate on whether the players are enjoying what they're doing if you've just seen them put in a, a performance with that degree of discipline and concentration. Because if yeah, they, they weren't do enjoying it. it, they wouldn't do it. They're just disregarding the evidence in front of them. And, I, you know, Mourinho always has had this ability to, well, not always, but but when he's been successful, like you said, uh, the, the teams he mentioned, he has created a mentality of we aren't going to care what other people are saying because we know we're doing the right thing. And he, he creates almost this kind of cultish element to it. And I don't say that critically. And at the moment, that's why I think, I mean, I agree with Seb about uh, Alder Wilraut and about Aurier, but Hoiberg is like the cult leader on the pitch. He just has taken, he's like embodied that degree of controlled aggression, discipline, and and really caring about doing the simple things correctly, consistently. Yeah. Hey, well, I am swallowing the Kool-Aid. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it tastes okay. You know, you know what Mourinho's <laughs> biggest success here has been is to not make it about him as much. I felt like that was one of the the issues at Manchester United and the second time around at Chelsea. I think he's done a really good job of making sure that players individually are praised. Uh, it's a little yeah. bit easier to do that when the side is winning, but um, it's been like a it's it seems like a deliberate attempt to go back to what he was the first time around at Chelsea and Porto not tactically but as a person a little bit of the bravado has gone a little he's not quite as provocative and that's a winning formula because for near on a decade Mourinho has meant uh, antagonism uh, press conference sulking um, victimizing players 
Um, and it's really refreshing not to have that. Um, I know there's a bit of an issue with Deli Ali, but uh, you know I, I don't think it's quite the same as kind of what happened to Henrik Mkhitaryan at United um, or Eden Hazard at Chelsea. Uh, it's 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 different, and I, I think he's done a fine job of pointing out good performances and getting players on side. Kane and Son are obvious ones, yeah, but he was very last season when Giovanni Lothelso was was sort of uh, in a way carrying the team. Uh, not the case now, obviously, but for a long time, he was the only positive scene running through that side. And Marino very, made a concerted effort in press conferences to praise him. And these are little subtle moments which individually aren't of any great consequence, but together they suggest a slightly altered uh, approach to management, which is uh, very welcome. Yeah. Is there also not a degree to which that that he particularly once he went to Real, but then also at Man United, that there was almost an expectation that the personality, Mourinho's personality, would be the most important thing. So, you know, with Real, there was very much this um, conflict created between him and Pep as the sort of two sides of football. And then Manchester United, he was he was coming in because he had the personality to be able to get to grips with that club and and save it. And it's almost like he 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 sort of feeds into that himself but actually when he's happiest like you said earlier it is when he's more maybe of an underdog because he can get on with letting his coaching do a lot of the talking rather than he doesn't have to put himself front and center he's got to stick it to someone if there's no one to stick it to then then how does it do you know what i mean maybe you start sticking it to people within the club or I, th- I think it's, it's it's really interesting because I think the, the Real Madrid example is fascinating because he's brought into the club to be the anti-Pep. He is the answer to Barcelona's dominance. Perez also refers to him as that year's Galactico, which is, that is, that's a very literal way of buying into the kind of the Mourinho personality cult. I remember, I can't remember when it was, I think maybe about 18 months to two years ago, I remember writing something. I'll try and dig it out. I'll put it out when we release the pod, but it was basically about how I just want to hear less noise from Jose Mourinho. I kind of want to go back to the person that was purely uh, concerned with the football, the mind, because we, a lot of, th- you know, quite rightly, people have questioned whether he's, um, whether he really belongs as a contemporary peer of, of Klopp and Guardiola. Um, and it just felt unlikely that someone that was so important to the game's progression, and not only really 15 years ago, could then become completely irrelevant to it. It just felt like what was happening is this sort of great fog associated with with his media handling tactics and his need to anti- antagonize and provoke um and the way he he carried himself with that hostility i think a lot of people have been waiting for this moment where you can actually talk about jose Mourinho, the football coach rather than jose Mourinho, uh the figure within the game the the character within kind of like a spitting image puppet in football and it's. I think that's why I found refreshing. Uh, Mourinho is a person. I, I, I still don't know what I think of him. I. There, it's very difficult to to move past some of the incidents associated with him. The Villanova incident um, is. I, I. It's very difficult to forget things like that. Um, but at the same time, it's just nice that he's allowed himself to almost take a little bit of a backseat and allow the players to be the stars in this instance. It's a Christmas miracle. 
Uh, anyway, <laughs> here's two questions. That's your you way can't... of just telling me to shut up. Yeah, I know, it worked really well. <laughs> it def- definitely uh, felt like that. It, it definitely was, yeah. <laughs> I just want to ask you two, two unanswerable questions now. Uh, I'll put them to both of you. Uh, let's begin with you, Alex. What does Mourinho need to do to be considered a better manager than Pep Guardiola within the realm of this season? Within the realm of this season? He... I mean, if he wins the league with Spurs, people are going to call him a better, better than Pep, aren't they? Because think about all the places, the different places that he's won the things, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, that definitely that definitely would, would help. But, I mean, Stoke I think... the fire. Yeah, but this... <laughs> I know. No, <laughs> I don't. I'm not going to stoke the fire. I'm going to stand quietly to one side and watch it burn um okay. there's yeah. <laughs> I, I i mean i think a lot of these conversations are moot really aren't they because there are so many variables involved in we can i i, I struggle to see why we can't recognize the fact that that they're all very good they're just very good in different ways because these aren't our children these are people it's okay to like some of them more than others um well in that regard i, I guess i probably like I don't know. I mean, I, I think Seb's absolutely right. There are there are a couple of instances in Mourinho's past that are really quite unpleasant. Um, and that makes him difficult to like in that way. But I also think that there's, there's something quite brilliant about the way that he shaped certain teams. I mean, that the, what he achieved with Porto is astonishing and is still kind of a benchmark for how smaller teams might progress and do well and and we've not seen anything similar to that really since it um you know i think it's it's very difficult it was a christmas Mourinho's always Mourinho's always going to be associated with a, a slightly more backward version of football because the dominant narrative of how football should be played is either jürgen klopp or pep guardiola and because he's neither of those things He's not going to get the tactical credit, perhaps, that he deserves. But this may I be a way I just don't of... get that. I agree with you, but I don't get that at all, Alex, because I, I, we've had this conversation before. I think that, uh, you know, let's say you're watching a Pep Guardiola Man City team. They win 2-0 in a big game against Arsenal or Spurs win 2-0 playing how they played, right? Uh, either you watch Arsenal faff around with the ball and unable to break Tottenham down and then Tottenham win with 33% possession, or you watch Pep Guardiola's Manchester City faff around with the ball and then score two goals, but just keep it and recycle it and it's safe a lot of the time. And sure, you've got cut and thrust and exciting players like Kevin De Bruyne and whatever, but the reality is that most of that game is boring in the same way that most of the Spurs game is boring. Uh, This idea that uh, Pep Guardiola, uh, as as an inherently attacking manager or whatever, produces teams that, that play games where every moment is full of Christmas miracles is is no, I'm not I'm not saying you're saying that I'm saying that is the that, that like the narrative is attacking football equals better therefore Pep Guardiola is better to watch than uh, than a Mourinho team and I just literally couldn't like I, but I can't that, but that deal was, with that that was at all. always the criticism of of you know tiki tacker if we remember began as a pejorative term and this idea that that Pep for example has that you know possession should last at, le- at least 15 passes because 15 passes is how long it takes everyone to get set into position like when that's done badly it's incredibly tedious um and when gagan pressing is done badly it looks unstructured and chaotic and doesn't like you know these things can all be done well or done badly and whether you 
whether you like them or not, I think depends on so many different... I, I would rather watch that Spurs performance because I can watch someone like Hoiberg shuttling around, sniffing out danger, anticipating everything. To me, that's fun. You know, that I <laughs> that, that's what I enjoy. Um, I don't enjoy necessarily watching, you know, De Bruyne tearing up the pitch and putting us... People watch football in different ways, don't they? Sure. It's a Christmas miracle. Seb... Uh, can Tottenham win? Tottenham are going to win the league, right? They're going to win the league, aren't they? Tottenham, they're going to win the league. Are they going to no, win no, I, I, I don't think so. But then I, I don't think that that should be the the Why final. Not? Who's going to win the league? Well, I, I still think Liverpool win the league. Um, I think uh... Uh, if I, I think we've made this point before. I think Alex and I discussed it last last week. But I think if um, Liverpool have shown that they're able to survive serious injuries, I don't yet know whether Tottenham are. Um, but it, then you know, even if Tottenham were to finish. You know, Tottenham finishing in the top four this season is a great achievement. You're back in the Champions League, it's exactly what Daniel Levy would want. Um, it's exactly what the players would want and most of the fans. So, uh, you know, good while it lasts, fingers crossed. Hopefully, maybe they, they, they might. They're certainly a contender, but I um, I still wouldn't have them as a favourite. I would just worry, Seb, that this is uh, the season. You know how Spurs are always just missing out when there are opportunities. I would worry that uh, with Liverpool's injury crisis, uh, uh, with Man City uh, nowhere near at the moment. I know it's Christmas isn't is a bit earlier than most Christmases uh, for the season, um, but this is a like not. I don't know if next year there's going to be the same opportunity as this year, right? No, I, and I agree with you. But then this is the problem with where Spurs are in their progression in ten years' time, perhaps when they've. Uh, fully milk the benefits of their new stadium and the commercial revenues that come with that maybe then they're a slightly different club but at the moment they're not really built to contend for titles you know you're talking about a supposed binary relationship between a kind of a Tottenham who are what they are who have you know spent heavily recently and then a Liverpool who um, you know have signed the world's most expensive goalkeeper the world's most expensive centre-half prior to uh, Harry Maguire you know who have several years on Spurs in terms of financial power and the ability to actually design the squad they want. Um, what I'm saying is that I'm not trying to create a, a preemptive excuse. I just think that it's, you know, if, if Jason Mourinho doesn't win the title with this Tottenham this year, then yes, maybe a window closes, but then there is still, it's still possible to see this as a great success because he inherited a side that were on a pretty sharp downward trend. Um, pretty alarming what was happening to them and also let's let's not rewrite history they were pretty ugly to watch last season um under Mourinho and so even as recently as that first Everton game it was absolute chaos and it was as bad as everybody says it was stop looking at things fairly I want to be excited I want to get all I want to get all wound up okay well let let me let me let me let me me give you an exciting thing because Alex we've got to wrap up really soon so Alex I'm gonna do 30 seconds uh, and then Alex okay. gets go 30 on, Alex. seconds. Okay. Go on, Alex. You, you, you go. Well, I'm just going to say, if, if, if Tottenham go to um, Anfield on the 16th and win, do you then answer that question differently? No, because I, I, I don't think so, because I see the individual games are important in a kind of Sky Sports Super Sunday way. But winning the league is about being durable <laughs> more than anything else. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm greatly encouraged. But, I was but we, we accept... I think we accept Spurs' durability, though, because that's that's how they're set up to play. I, I, no, I no, do, not, yes. not, not durability in the sense of being able to survive, you know, attacking pressure. I mean, being able to survive a 38-game season in a, you know, long slog through the Europa League, that kind of durability. Yeah, an injury to Harry Kane or Son or, or Hoiberg or whatever would, would collapse the side, right? 
Yeah, I mean, not you collapse see, it, but it yeah, wants I mean, to take it away from where it is now. On Dembele being being unwell for Sunday changed the way the side played, and I think there's quite a few t- few few players throughout that side that um, for whom that's the same thing. But then, what I was going to say was that people can find that type of football boring if they want, but then if you look at it in a slightly more granular way and you look at some of the combinations that are being developed. I mean, there isn't really, uh, there's something quite unique about what Son and Kane are doing, how they're playing together. The counter-attack is a study into actually the art of counter-attacking at the moment. It's very, very interesting. Um, and also the rebalancing of the midfield generally, it's fascinating. So is the football entertaining in a popcorn and, you know, um, pom-pom way? No, maybe not. But if you love the game and if you want to focus on kind of technical improvement, there's a lot there to uh, to get your teeth into. I agree. And I think that the best thing to do is to allow yourself to be washed away on the Sea of Mourinho. Just be carried away by the lovely warm spurs. Washed away on the yourself. Sea of Mourinho. That even is completely unacceptable podcast Even behavior. if you didn't like them yesterday, last week, last year, whatever, just like them now. It's not flip-flopping. It's fine. This is the whole point of football. You're supposed to not think about it and just go with the football flow. And that's what I'm doing. So I have got pom-poms. I've got pom-poms for Mourinho. It's a Christmas miracle. Anyway, speaking of Christmas, uh, we will be uh, on a break for uh, a week, uh, the week uh, uh, between Christmas and New Year. So uh, there would ordinarily be an episode out on the 29th and the 31st. There won't be this year. And you might ask why. Well, we're busy. And you might complain. Well, you know, audience analysis has shown that people don't listen to podcasts at Christmas. So, you know, either change that. Talk to your relatives. Or, you know, yeah, go and talk to your relatives. um, And we'll be back uh, after Christmas and New Year with some special Sensible Transfer episodes because uh, January is upcoming um, and some other few new exciting things too. So thank you to Alex Stewart. Thanks, Joe. Thanks to Seb Stafford-Bloor. Thank you, Joe Devine. Great thanks to uh, our uh, Arsenal supporting producer Adonis for uh, putting, up, <laughs> putting up with this episode and enjoy your edit, Adonis. And uh, thanks to you, the listener, for downloading and enjoying. Merry, uh, happy, uh, you know, enjoy. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 